Hey, welcome to the CMO Whisper Show. I'm your host, Steve Olensky. Part marketing practitioner, part ad agency veteran, part journalist. I was a writer for Forbes for 10 years. I've had so many insightful conversations over the years with business leaders, to athletes, to celebrities, to, of course, CMOs. The only difference now is instead of sharing those insights through written form, I'm doing it this way. My guest today is a friend, a mentor, a sister, a confidant, all of the above. Alma Derricks has over 25 years of experience building inventive new ventures at established media, entertainment, tech, hospitality, CPG, you name it, she's done it at brands like Verizon, SiriusXM, Amazon, Southwest Airlines. She's held senior management positions at HBO, Paramount, and Cirque du Soleil. She's currently a senior client partner at Corn Ferry. Anyway, welcome to the show, my dearest, dearest friend, Alma Derricks. So great to be here, Steve. So here's a question I always ask right off the bat with someone of your experience, because I'm just fascinated, right? And I get, I get this asked a lot. Maybe you do too. What's the difference between marketing and advertising? Marketing for me is sort of capital M marketing. It's a bigger look at the overall go-to-market. I think advertising is one subset. It's, a, it's one tactic in the arsenal that you have to go to market. So I think that marketing usually encompasses a broader view, a kind of 360 degree view of, of everything that you do commercially out in the world. Yeah, I've heard it's it's one of those, oh, yeah, I get asked that a lot. What do I answer that? And your answer is pretty much in line with what everybody else has been saying. It's like marketing is, I mean, advertising is like a subset of marketing. That's fair. So it's, there's so many things I want to ask you about. But right off the bat, not long ago, you posted something on LinkedIn about the need for companies to, and I love this phrase, avoid being knee-jerk about entitlement. And you added that employees are simply drawing a line when it comes to toxicity. And you used the hashtag lazy girl jobs. Explain, please. Well, lazy girl jobs is a is a phenomenon. If you know, if you uh, are following it on TikTok, if you look it up on X or whatever it's called today, it's yeah. it's the idea that you know young women especially have sort of been leading this charge of deciding to take a just enough job. I'm going to take a job that's just enough to pay my bills but I'm not knocking myself out. I'm going to check in at the appointed hour, check out at the appointed hour. I'm not going to take it home. I'm not going to grind on it. I'm not going to stay up all weekend. And it's because I am centering my mental health and I'm centering other things in my life that I want to accomplish outside of work. And the reaction to it, if you, you know, even if you just hit the hashtag, Steve, if you take a look at it, you'll see the two camps form right away, right? There's the, I am taking care of myself and putting me first camp. And then there's the, you're lazy, entitled, you know, have no work ethic. It's the other side of it. And what I posted about was the idea that the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? And it's easy mm. to flag one of these young women as, being lazy, entitled, spoiled, whatever negative thing you want to attach to it. But the way I read it is that they are simply drawing a line in the sand and saying, here are the things I won't tolerate anymore. And that companies have to understand that they have been complicit in creating this sense of distrust 
between young employees and the workplace. You can't argue that when they look back at what they saw their parents go through, when they, what they watch their older siblings go through, you can't as a company in good faith say, you were doing everything right and these kids just didn't understand it and didn't have a work ethic and didn't mm. know what to do with it. And so they are calling out companies who have taken employees for granted, who've taken workplace for granted. It's all come to a head now after COVID as we talk about hybrid. And, you know, it's very simple to take someone who says that, you know, I'm trying to balance my life now to say, well, you're being entitled and selfish. You know, there, nowhere does it say that you're supposed to give 100% of your life to a company and they're drawing a line and asking you to admit where you're complicit in this. And so more often than not, what I see is that employees are making the case, companies are turning a blind eye and trying to position it as something negative or a weakness or something in an employee. And it's not fair. And there has to be something in the middle. I think companies need to take seriously so that you that if w young women are doing this, what did you do to push them out the door? Not look at them as lazy. What did you do to not earn their trust and take a good look in the mirror? Which you, which we all know, a lot of companies will not want to do that. Mm -hmm. It'll be too easy for them to just say it's all them. It's all them. It's the way we've always done it. You know, whatever excuse for not changing that you want. Exactly, exactly, and it's human nature, right? And to to be that kind of you put up mm -hmm. the defenses right away, right? And especially if it's from a younger generation, it's easy to just have that default. Here we go. They're entitled. They think they, you know, instead of listening, you just put up the blinders. And that's really dangerous. So I, I love that. I love that topic. What kind of feedback did you get on the post, by the way? Mostly thumbs up. I mean, I think it's, you know, I'm really just trying to balance the conversation because it's almost a team sport mm -hmm. to beat up on Gen Z for something. And in yep. mostly balanced responses, lots of people resharing, um, retweeting. I mean, we have to find a middle ground. Because the other part, Steve, is that even if these young women want to venture out on their own or start new businesses, only so many of them really are entrepreneurs. We can't just put it on them to go recreate the system. We really do need big companies to be healthy. We need them to be, you know, it's not about nurturing. I mean, think of all the negativity. I, I, you want to be coddled. You want to be nurtured, all these things. We just need workplaces to not be unsafe, to not be toxic. And we need big institutions. We need big companies to be better than they are. We can't just replace them wholesale with a series of, of startups and individual projects. And, you know, it, it, that's, that's not the answer either. We need our big companies to be more hospitable places. Yeah, because they'll, they're the ones driving the change, right? Of all companies that fall underneath them. If they you. drive the market. Exactly. And they set the pace for everything else. And they just got to do better. You know, it's funny that, you know, I, th I think long and hard about how much time I've spent in corporate. And you mentioned a lot of the brands that I've worked for. And I do have a, you know, it's not a belief in corporations and capitalism, but it's a it's a recognition that they have to do better. I mean, it's, it's like thinking about government, right? We can complain about mm -hmm. government, yep. we can want it to be other things, but we can't just say you just blow it all up. You know, that that's not realistic either. 
right? So you do have to kind of take this giant unwieldy thing that's very hard to do, that's easier to do without taking human factors into account. Business is a whole lot easier if you just sort of plow through the human beings in it. The whole thing does get a lot easier. People are messy. People have issues. People have personalities. I, I get it. I'm not saying it's not hard, but we can't abandon ship and say we're just going to give up on these institutions. That's really interesting about your thoughts on how companies are branding kind of a whole generation, right, as being entitled without really getting to the heart of the problem. So let me pivot to a different topic here, and that's DE&I and marketing. And you said something really interesting not long ago to me. You said, while many companies are doing everything they can to dodge DE&I as a hiring slash retention topic, they're missing the impact that a lack of diversity has on their ability to serve their customers. It's fascinating. I want to give you the floor to elaborate on that. Yeah. And what I mean by dodging is just the idea that this is hard stuff. I mean, Steve, you and I have talked about this for for years. It's been a through line conversation we've had for multiple years. And it's a difficult topic. It raises all sorts of personal feelings, sort of internal monologues. You don't know where the lines are in a workplace and how to deal with it and how to deal with all the feelings you're having. But what I meant was that the bigger implication of not thinking about having representation and points of view inside a company really cripples you when you think about your audience out in the world. If you don't have the the ability to anticipate what someone's lived experience is out in the world, it's like trying to do marketing with one hand tied behind your back. I mean, great marketers know how to inhabit the psyche of their target customers. It's what we do. We know how to be chameleons. We know how to move. And if I, if I, if I threw any target segment at a great marketer, they can start to build a profile and a persona and a way to think about that person. But how much richer is it when you have all those lived experiences around the table? And if you're talking to an audience of women, how important is it to have women in the room thinking through the approach and sort of anticipating what that mindset might be. And companies are poorer for not having those voices represented around a table. It's it's the essence of what you're trying to do. And as a matter of fact, it's getting harder to do. It's harder to break through the noise. So we all talk about being authentic and being authentic with customers and, and reaching them with things that touch them. Well, how do you do that if you only have one perspective sitting around the table? I think it's impossible. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And it's, do you, do you see it changing at all in, in the next three, five, 10 years? I think that the census will take care of some of it. I certainly think the, the the culture is diversifying on its own. It's not something that you can change. And we're seeing a better balance. I, I think certain industries are far more attuned to this than others. But as a general rule, the hesitation about it, I think, will continue. Because now it's not only interpersonal and societal, but it's become political. I think we're going to continue to grind on this topic for a very long time, largely because we don't completely understand each other. We still don't really have the kinds of conversations you and I've gotten into, Steve, right? You know? Right. Yeah. 
But you have to want yeah. to, on, on, you know, it takes two, right. two to tango kind of thing, right? So I know yeah. that's obvious. But, but you have to feel there, there has to be something in it for you that, that's enlightening as opposed to frightening when you're, in, you're just encountering something new. And I've always right. said, I think, right. you know, you need, you need friendships, not just working relationships, not just, you know, passing acquaintances. You really do need to get to know people that are very different from you, whatever different means whatever that looks like. And you need right. to have them in your life to just see things from other perspectives and just have that conversation. Because I think the basic humanity of the friendship is what carries you through all the dumb questions and all the stuff around it. You know, you you have an affinity for each other, you have an affection for each other. And whatever the other person says at that point, no matter how controversial, you have a fundamental compassion for them as a human being. And you may challenge yeah. them, you may you have to just you know, don't have to agree. I'm not saying this is about coming to consensus on everything, but I'm going to hear you out because I care about you, because I care about you as my friend. And so if you take a different turn on something, I'm going to be more willing to just pause and say, okay, walk me through this. I'm not seeing it, but walk me through it. And that's the time that we don't take in passing or in fights in social media, you know, just out in the wild. Yeah, I know. I know. Hopefully those people listening to this will get it. So we can only hope. I got to turn to what it's like to be a CMO, right? Yeah, you know, I know a lot of CMOs. I've interviewed a ton of CMOs. And the the elephant in the room is always the average tenure of a CMO. How many times do we hear this, right? But why? I mean, it gets more complex, but the average tenure shrinks. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, right? So why? You know, you're a former CMO. You work with CMOs. Why is there this ongoing dichotomy of a CMO to get more stuff done in less time? Well, look, you, you've got the, the CMO really is the, the voice of the customer. I mean, that's another thing that's, that's said a lot. But really think about what that means. It's the one role in the C-suite that's meant to represent, be the, be the voice, be the, the, the heart, the beating heart of whoever your customer is, whether that's a, you know, a consumer audience, whether it's B2B, it's all the same. These are people on the other side that have a need. And it all, the, the, the marketing team becomes, and the CMO particularly, is the nexus for bringing that perspective back into the company. And unfortunately, I think when you combine that point of view with a quarterly hamster wheel need to meet numbers, to drive sales, whatever it is, you get caught in this crossfire between being the ones who are really thinking big thoughts about the, the customer base, really thinking about what they need, thinking strategically about where a product or an experience or wherever it's going in the long term. You're being held to account in the short term so much that if that's not working, if sales take a downturn, if something goes wrong, mm -hmm. you also become the excuse for that. And so that sense, mm. when you asked me at the top about the difference between marketing and advertising, if you're seen as tactical, it's a natural tendency to say, well, let's just try another tactic, which means let's get somebody else with another idea and another tactic. Yep. And so you make the role disposable at exactly the moment you need to make it the most persistent. Yeah. I, I still hold that part of the reason this average CMO tenure is so low is that 
company CEOs don't do enough due diligence to fully know what kind of CMO, mm-hmm. like you just said, tactical. Not every That's CMO right. is tactical, right? But instead of just hanging up a, a help wanted sign for a CMO, you got to get more granular than that. What kind yeah. of CMO do you and, and because of that, it makes it hard for someone outside of marketing to even understand what the definition of a CMO is. Because the answer is, as you know, it depends. If you pluck 10 CMOs exactly. and line them up and you were trying to teach a CEO what the attributes are, there is no one answer. It's all very, very dependent on each company. And so it makes it hard for people outside of the function and outside of the discipline to even know what they're looking for or to recognize that needs change over time as well. When I think back to B-School, I think it was one of the most misunderstood components. And I think I've said to you before, I couldn't have finished B-School without a firm understanding of, of finance. And yet... I had classmates who could who finished and are holding a degree just like I have who left without really understanding two things, marketing and human factors things, anything around organization. Yeah. You could yeah. Uh, just blow them off, but you know, the core th- but I couldn't leave without understanding the numbers. And I think we take it for granted and I think it's we we take the ability to think in the multiple dimensions that it takes to think as a CMO. We really take that for granted because a lot of people are wired for one or two of those dimensions and not 10 of them simultaneously. Exactly. Exactly. I'm curious to get your thoughts on the relationship in the C-suite as a CMO. And, and is there is there a certain other in the C-suite a CMO needs to be uh, have a better relationship than others? Is it all of them? Is it the CEO? Like, let's The dynamic of the relationship in the C-suite is fascinating to me. My fantasy marriage is between the CMO and the CFO. You know, if I could take any mm. two roles in the C-suite and, you know, bring them together, just join them at the hip, have them cross-pollinate. I think that it's an opportunity for both the, you know, CFO sort of representing the the financials, the analytics, that piece of the business, and the CMO kind of representing the consumer and the outside in. I think the two of them could learn an immense amount from each other and then together helped the CEO see a little differently. You know, it's already a little bit lopsided that so many CEOs come from the finance or sales side of the house. So it's already, the balance is already a little bit tipped. And I think if a CMO can help a CFO really understand the the levers and what you're trying to do with the moving parts and with budgets that you're asking for and with the metrics that you're trying to, you know, you're, you're trying to keep tabs on. I think that if finance people had a better grasp of the end game that the that marketing people are dealing with and vice versa marketing people are let into the larger strategic issues and and asked to think about and be a thought partner on the analytics and the finances of where things are going i think both of them 1 plus 1 equals 3 i think both of them become smarter and both of them become a better asset to the ceo but I think bridging that gap is one of the widest gaps because the disciplines are so very different. But I think if we could close that, I think organizations would be much, much better. Yeah. There there obviously has to be the willingness to close that gap. But that's obvious. But 
sometimes it gets overlooked and those those dreaded silos get in the way, right? Well, so well, but to that point, Steve, I, I if I were a CEO, I wouldn't undertake mm-hmm. a new business line or anything without making the CMO and the CFO the co-leads of it. I mean, you can look at it from the other direction, right? You know, a lot of times new businesses and new ventures live in the finance organization without touching the ground inside marketing. Either one would be a miss, right? Either one alone would be a miss. If I were looking at it from the top down, I would make them the co-leads. I'd make them hold hands and I'd make them together, bring their two kinds of brains together, their two wirings together to think through a new market opportunity. I think that's where you've really covered all your bases. Hmm, I like that. That's the that's a great kind of left side, right mm-hmm. side brain thing, but you know, all for the good of the company, which I know sounds like you know a kumbaya kind of thing, but it really is. Back to what we were talking about before, just the idea of having perspectives around the table, as many perspectives as you possibly can. Is your you know whatever whatever metaphor we want to use, like you're turning the Rubik's cube, you're you know, but you want as many dimensions, as many different ways to think about this problem. It's not just kumbaya, the research shows that if you take a diverse team and a, and a non-diverse team, that the outcomes are just stronger when you have that many more different ways of looking at something around the table. It's just a given. Yeah, no, you're right. So I want to, your career, which I talked at the top, it was, it's just incredible. And I'm going to put you on the spot. Who's had the biggest impact if you had to pick one person and why? Hmm. Who's had the biggest impact? That's a great question. I can say that not a person, but I think back to the early days of the internet and sort of the time spent with Peanuts and Dilbert and bringing some of those older brands into this new space. I would say the most impactful span was, you know, this was the mid 90s. The internet was brand new. Uh, We were just coming out of the AOL Prodigy CompuServe days, for those who remember the ancient history of of online, and the web was brand new. And I think the Mm -hmm. thing that I've taken with me the most was, you know, we had a wide open field, wide open space to run, this little technology that we didn't know how it would change the world exactly, but it was new and different. We'd never seen it before, probably like the beginning of radio or the beginning of television. And I think the most impactful thing was recognizing how people and their fundamental makeup really stayed the same in a through line all through that. So the world was shifting, technology was changing, but I've never forgotten and I always kind of remind myself that for all the things that were sea changes, they're also just things about people that stay the same. And Mm. when we use the internet, for example, the the main thing that the internet did back at that time was open a two-way channel with audiences. You know, media as we knew it was one way up until then. So radio started a point, it rained down on you. Television came from a single point and rained down on you. Now, all of a sudden, we have this two-way conversation. And the dynamics of what drove that were human interests and human wants and desires. So, you know, when we put Dilbert on the on the internet for the first time, there were people that wanted to play along. They wanted to be next to it. We had, you know, we would let people 
post their own photos of things and they would be a part of it. It was just a basic community, wanting to be a part of something communal and wanting to be, you know, next to this brand that, and this, this character that spoke for them, that really was almost like a character that was in their heads or watching them at work and really understood them. What worked about it wasn't the, the T1 line that was supporting it or the computer. It was just that people gravitate toward things that, that create community. And then later on, obviously, we know that social media came after that. These are still just people and trying to do the same things they were doing in, in real life, but having a, a virtual way to do it. And so I, so I think the most impactful thing kind of has come in retrospect full circle for me, that there are things that no matter what technology you put in front of somebody, you just always have to remember, what is it? These are human beings. What do they want to do? They want to socialize. They want to meet each other. They want to be heard. They want to express their fandom. I mean, think about how fandom itself has grown. Before there was the internet, before there was any technology, there were there were smaller versions of what we call cons now. You know, now we have cons for all kinds of things. People want to come together and celebrate and have a thing in the center center square. So I don't know if that's a complete answer to the question, but... No, there's no, well, yeah. <laughs> there's no wrong answer. <laughs> so it wasn't yeah. who, it was what, yeah. and that's perfectly fine. So staying with the career lane here, if you will, you've accomplished so much. Is there anything that would you say that you're most proud of, of what mm-hmm. you've accomplished? I'm proud that I have never shied away from pushing the envelope in places that I've been. I think that's been a a through line. And I don't regret the moments, you know, when you do that, you have about a 50-50 batting average, right? Like it's, it's, if you're lucky on a good day, you're at 50-50, right? But I don't ever regret trying to push companies to think outside of themselves and trying to expand their point of view. And sometimes that's well-received and it's celebrated and people appreciate it. Other times you get tissue rejection and you sort of end up (laughs) falling flat on your face. But I appreciate about myself that I've never backed down from that. And I can always Mm. say, almost to a situation, that I've been the one to tell the truth, even if it's not popular. I try to be as mm-hmm. diplomatic as I can. You know, I don't go in just like a wrecking ball trying to tear things down, but sometimes things just need to be said. And I think the internet era, going back to that for a minute, was something that drew a lot of very adventurous people, people who who enjoyed taking risks and enjoyed being kind of on the outside, drew them completely out of our traditional organizations. They, they went into internet startups and all sorts of other kinds of businesses and never really circled back. And so companies lost like this whole tribe of people with a certain kind of DNA in that era that now 20 years later, 30 years later, you're starting to see the effects of that because companies become more and mm. more insular. And, and that one kid who would have been in the room raising his hand, going, but wait a minute, I don't understand. Why don't we just, that kid left when there was a chance to go work at MySpace or Facebook or whatever it was early on, they left to go to a place that was more hospitable. 
And the people who stayed mm-hmm. behind were the ones who weren't nearly so adventurous. And I'm not saying that they're right or wrong or smarter or not smarter. It was, it's just this general wiring about risk-taking. And you need those mm. people to kind of be the, you know, just to, just to irritate things and ask why not or ask, but wait a minute, like, I'm not, I don't understand. Yeah. And, and again, not for the sake of just being disruptive. That's its own kind of romanticizing thing that's wrong too, to just say, you know, I'm just going to tear it up for the sake of tearing it up. But to just question or just ask it from a different angle. I mean, where I've benefited as a consultant when, you know, when I'm asked to come in and be an advisor from the outside on purpose, they know I'm not inside. They know I haven't been there for 20 years. The superpower I have is that I'm seeing it for the first time. And I've stopped conversations mm-hmm. by being able to just ask, is they're explaining how their company works or they're explaining some system or process by just asking, wait a minute, I just want to make sure I understand. You said A to B and then you said C to D. I didn't hear you talk about how B gets to C and maybe I missed it. But you know, I'm, not, I, I, I'm looking at my notes, I don't have it. And it might be a question they hadn't thought about in years, you know? And so the fresh eyes, you know, this is the, the push and pull of having people who are there, who are long timers in a company, who bring a lot of institutional memory. You need that, but you also need people going, yeah, but why are we doing it that way? Exactly. It's the forest to the trees. Yep. And so I, I'm very proud of the fact that I have pretty successfully always been that person, whether or not. I was always welcomed with open arms or not. I've never missed a chance to say that when I saw it and thought it needed to be said. I appreciate that streak in me, in myself. <laughs> as you should. So as we come to near the end of this incredible discussion, you notice on the wall behind me, I know people listening cannot see this, but I have a series of album covers on my wall behind me because I'm a huge music fan. And I'm a very eclectic music fan because, as Alma would tell you, she can see albums from The Temptations to The Rolling Stones to The OJs to Earth, Wind, and Fire to The Rolling Stones. Very eclectic. And I always like to ask this question of somebody because I'm a big pop culture fan. I, I think pop culture connects the world in, in a lot of different ways. So my favorite song of all time is a song called Lean on Me by Bill Withers. And it's from the 70s. And I know with people of a certain age, I know they remade it, but the lyrics have always resonated with me. My question to you is, and, and yes, I'm very much putting, putting you on the spot, but is there a song or a lyric, or if I say that, kind of like a quick word association kind of thing that comes to mind when I say, well, is there a song, what song, what lyric really resonates or, or represents you or speaks to you? you- no, there is a lyric, Steve. It's interesting you ask that. U2 is one of my favorite bands. And on the All That You Can't Leave Behind album, there's a song called Walk On. And there's a lyric. You asked specifically about a lyric from a song. There's a lyric that says, I'm packing a suitcase for a place none of us have been, a place that has to be believed to be seen. Mm. And I've always loved the sentiment of just this forward looking out there beyond the edges, out there beyond the horizon, off-roading sense of that. But it's, it's one of my all time favorite lines in any single song. It's just beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's deep. It's very thought provoking. 
I love it. Last question about, well, last question actually, period. As I'm this big music fan and, and audio and sounds, and I, I landed on this phrase not long ago, the sound of marketing. So um, I ask everybody who comes on, what does the sound of marketing sound like? Oh my like goodness. You? Well, tell me more about the, the phrase and you heard it. Just, I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah. So, so I just, it just came in, the, it, it came right. Exactly. I'm like, I'm coming at this from a, from a non video, obviously, you know, what does marketing sound like to you? Like, what does, if I say the sound of marketing, so if you close your eyes, right. Or, or just that's that again, the word association, the sound of marketing. Well, what, what, what yeah. conjures up, it's what comes to mind? Interesting idea. I mean, I, I, I think of yeah. it being loud and immersive, like the kind of sound that's washing over you and through you. You know, marketing is the soup that you swim in a little bit. And so I think it's it probably doesn't have any lyrics as we're talking about great lyrics. I think it it's it's ambient in a way. I think that it's it's kind of a theme that wraps around you. I, I, I couldn't help but think about athletes and their walk-on music, right? But I but I think of it also being very 360 around you. It's it's not overt. It's not just in front of you. You're not at a distance watching it like a concert. I would think that it's sound that that is immersive and multidimensional mm. around you that just provokes a feeling. You know, there's, some, there's something An about, emotion. you know, when you get to marketing yeah. and you really think about what a brand is and the the essence of what a brand is, it should have a very strong point of view. Yeah, like a theater in a round. Yeah, yeah. It's a really provocative thing to think about, the sound of marketing. So, well, listen, I'm going to wrap it up. I, Lord knows I could keep talking. You and I talk all the time in our conversations. You know, the only difference is now we recorded it. Love it. <laughs> it's just brilliant. And and I love you to death. You're one of the smartest people in marketing. I know I cannot thank you uh, enough for being a guest on the CMO Whisperer Show. So that's CMO Whisperer Show. Say five that. Fast. Thank you. <laughs> Say Alma. that five times fast, Steve. <laughs> right. Thank you, Alma. Thank you, Steve. Well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I hope you shared this episode with your friends. And if you have not already, please subscribe to be kept up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're so inclined, leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you. 